all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 225 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the uh, Maria or Miria episode, a.k.a. Cossack episode of the SLS cast, because it turns out that the longest and heaviest airplane ever built under the NATO reporting name of Cossack is the Antov AN-225, also known as the Maria. M-R-I-Y-A. And with that wonderful little bit of Antonov AN-225 knowledge, I, of course, am mad. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident employee, Sony employee. I did it again. Resident employee. (laughs) Resident Sony employee. Janitor Tim is here. So did you, that opening tidbit of historical news, that's Russian, right? So are, are you like... Stuck in the Russian frame of mind after watching a two-hour and 50-long-minute Russian film? <laughs> uh, no, no. Although it is heartening to know that there was sincerely really good cinema coming out of Russia in the 70s. Um, I, I am I, I truly find myself surprised to say that. But... Um, I mean, I wasn't expecting like North Korean level crap from like the eighties, but I-, I was not expecting it to be as good as it was. I think they were surprised too at the time. <laughs> I think everybody's favorite movie is probably Solaris or one of his earlier films from just uh you know a handful of years before that. Sure. But how have you been doing, sir? I've been doing well. I've just been doing a lot of writing and uh, and whatnot, getting ready to resubmit the old script to the film competition here in April or May. But Matt, I must know, how hungover were you the morning after we recorded last week's show? I was good, really and truly. I was actually good. I... Because you didn't sound all that good when we were recording. <laughs> <laughs> I contemplated whether I should get on a plane, fly over to Houston, go to your house, maybe, you know, make sure you were sleeping on your side, just in case. No, and then it fly wasn't back. that bad. If anything, if anything, I did uh, much, much worse than that on Saturday. So, Oh, so you went above and beyond I on did. the weekend. I did. Uh, and yet, even still, I was, I was smart about, see, the, the, you gotta be smart about when you cut yourself off. If you realize you're hitting the point where it's like, hang on, hang on, I am definitely drunk. You gotta be smart and cut yourself off. Get that Uber, get your ride home. Or if in the case where I was on Tuesday, you know, walk the half block home, um, you know, then, then you should be okay. So, I got, I, I was there and, uh. Wait, did you walk home or did you take an Uber that on half Tuesday, walk home? On Tuesday? No, on Tuesday. Yeah, I just walked. No, oh, on, on Monday. On Saturday. Sat- on Monday. Whatever it was, the, whenever, whatever day it was that we recorded was literally, I was just down the street. So, I mean, I just walked down the street. 
Oh, okay. No, I thought you were talking about Saturday. No, 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 no. Saturday, you... oh, okay. I was smart enough to not get that far along where I still had to drive. Um, after that, though, I then continued on and even still stopped with enough time. So to not was it another Scotch night or did you? No, venture it was. Uh, it other... was. Um, it, it was whiskey and beer. One there has bourbon, to be a country song. One shot that, right? and one beer. No, there's a George Thorogood song though called One. Bourbon, one shot, one shot, and one beer. Yeah, one beer. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know that. George Thurgood and the Delaware Destroyers. I got that album on vinyl, actually. Nice. But yeah, whiskey and beer, whiskey and beer. Matt really likes his whiskey and beer. So are you one that can drink a lot, and then the next day you cannot drink anything because you're just your body is just so over it that if you were to drink another drink, it would just completely reject it immediately? Or are you one of the foolhardy, menly men that can just drink regardless of how drunk they got the night before um, or day before. I, I No, I definitely can because I have, but I also don't crave it either. So it's really just kind of situation dependent. If I really had a you know bunch of alcohol the night before and I wake up, I'm definitely not sitting there going, oh man, I need some hair of the dog. Oh, you know, I don't, I'm not doing that. Maybe seven or eight hours later, someone's like, beer? And I'm and and then it just kind of depends on how it strikes me. I might still go, nah, I'm just not feeling it. Or I might go, eh, sure, why not? So it, it really you don't want to let on to your kids that you have an issue, you know, that, that you have a problem. Oh, gosh. No, I was really bad the last week because not only was there Tuesday, <laughs> uh, we went to the rodeo and saw Blink-182. So I was doing Crown and Coke then and then Saturday. So, I mean, I've really blown my, you know, whole health standards away for last week. So I've got to get back on the old uh, get back on the old fitness horse and everything. So, yeah. Well, I got the significant other drunk last night, and that only happens on a rare occasion, especially on a Sunday night. Really? Yeah. It only took two drinks, well, which isn't is saying too skinny, much. So, I mean, I can understand. And she doesn't drink a lot. I mean, we, we usually drink more wine, uh, just, I, I guess, living out here and going to the vineyards a lot more. We kind of... Uh, we're, we're not winos by any means. Not at all. I mean, we can go and get a $14, $15 bottle of wine and... That suits me just fine. Even there's even really good ten dollar. What is it? Five hands or four hands? I forget what that vineyard is. Uh, but they make really good, well priced wine. But uh, no, so I so I've been um, kind of taking the healthier route with my cocktails, and I decided to switch over to vodka from drinking whiskey and scotch, which I've been drinking for many many years. Normally, what I drink at night is just vodka with club soda and a little bit of lime juice and have a few of those and I'm good to go and I don't feel all bloaty and all that shit. Well, you know, the significant other, you know, she drinks just regular vodka. Her body rejects it. Doesn't matter how sober she is. Her body just automatically rejects it. But she goes, you know, well, if you want to make a good drink, we have to go get the whipped vodka, you know, the whipped cream flavored vodka, and we got to get some pog. Which I learned that POG stands for Passion Orange Juice Guava, I think. Oh, see, I thought it was a slammer game thing from the 90s that she was resurrecting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she will only drink whipped vodka while we play POGs. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, what you do, so I mean, we went to the, our local Ralph's, which is Kroger's out here. Got some kind of Dole juice, which is like banana 
orange and something that mixes well with it. And just put in the shaker with the whipped vodka and a little bit of real vodka in it, and you got a really tasty drink. And man, it knocked her clear into the bed. Like, she didn't even have to get up. Like, her body was just an autopilot after the second drink. Like, I got to get to bed. It's 10 o'clock and try to wake up tomorrow morning. And does that make me a horrible person? I mean, I had a feeling that would happen. And I find that stuff kind of entertaining in some way. Because it's only two drinks. It's not like I'm giving her, like, 20 or 30. And it's not like I'm giving her, like, five shots in a in a drink. It's probably, you know, it's probably one shot per serving. Well, I don't know. I don't think I don't think that it was a bad thing. I mean, it was her idea for the drink itself, so. It is. Yeah. yeah. She brought it upon herself, really. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, my goodness. So, so, are we ready to uh, look in the old mail sack, sir? Look in that old mail sack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll usually say shake your mail sack, so I can't really... Yeah, but yeah, yeah, look at it. All right. Well, we are looking inside the old mail sack. We've got a couple Twitter followers to mention. We don't have any emails to read this week. But as always, if you would like to send us an email, please do so by sending one to the show at slscast.com. And if you want to follow us on Twitter and have us announce you as a Twitter follower, then just follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. So... Uh, let's see here. First up, we've got, uh, Markel Clay, which is at Markel Clay. Um, and thank you very much for, uh, following us. It seems, uh, um, well, I guess, uh, yeah, he seems to be a performer of sorts. So thank you very much, Markel, for following us there. And then, of course, we also have Angry Old Man Podcast, which is at Robert and Edna. <laughs> uh let's see here uh, it, you, you can uh, definitely check them out um out of bellaterra california so what's up thank you very much for those follows and that is everything that we have to discuss from the old mail sack sir so if you're ready we can jump right into the news let's do it all right folks here we go it's the news <laughs> And first up for me, we're going to talk, we're going to do a little bit of, we're going to do a little bit of Marvel action here. Got a pair of stories in the old Marvel department from ScreenRant.com by way of Matthew Areo. Venom movie may be filming fall 2017 described as horror sci-fi. Yes, way back when Spider-Man 3 hadn't yet proven to be one of the most decisive uh, superhero superhero films of all time. I'm pretty sure that word is supposed to be divisive or maybe derisive, probably divisive. Uh, but yeah, it says decisive. Like, I mean, it it decidedly was a superhero movie. There's a lot of people who think it sucks, and then there's a lot of people who like it. So that's kind of divisive, right? Anyway, Sony uh, was exp- was canon expanding their chunk of the Marvel Universe. One of their biggest plans was to give popular anti-hero Venom his own film. But then uh, that 70s show 
said, fuck it. I'm just kidding. That's not what it says. <laughs> but a mixture of the failure of Topher Grace's version of the character, the lambasting Spider-Man 3 received, and development hell swallowed up the project. For fans, it was bittersweet. Uh, while they've long wanted a live-action version of Venom, they also wanted it done right. The studio later tried to float the film set in the rebooted The Amazing Spider-Man universe. Uh, Sony, finally making a deal with Marvel to bring Spidey into the MCU, halted that project, but didn't quite end it. Recently, uh, word that a new Venom was being fast-tracked uh, let's see. Yes, there is word that a new Venom was being fast-tracked by Sony. At this point, not much is known about the film beyond that it isn't going to be connected to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. While fans have wondered how a Venom movie could work without Spider-Man or how two universes could exist side-by-side, side, Sony doesn't seem worried. Um, according to My Entertainment World, it's been labeled action horror sci-fi and the and and I, I definitely feel free to read the rest of this article um i'm not really happy I, you know okay you know how like when you read i'm sorry to go off on this little slant but you know how like when you read your brain can actually process certain gaps and will jump over certain grammatical errors uh, and then when you actually go to read it out loud you see them all yeah that's what happened here so sorry about that guys um Last line of the article says Venom will debut in theaters on October 5th, 2018. Um, definitely, I only read the first half of the article. You can definitely jump in and see the other half. I'm going to jump over here real quick. Uh, MSN.com uh, through Movie Phone by way of Sharon Knoll. Chris Evans says, quote, it's up to Marvel, end quote, whether he stays on as Captain America. Chris Evans is contracted to play Captain America through Avengers 4, and then the actor says it's up to Marvel whether he continues or not. Last week, a bruised and tired Evans told Esquire he was ready to quit since his contract was up. According to the article, quote, he's hurting all over because he just started his workout routine the day before to get in shape for the next two Captain America films. The movies will be shot back to back beginning in April, end quote. But while out promoting his new film Gifted this week, he told Collider it's hard to think of giving up playing the iconic red, white, and blue character. Quote, it's really not up to me. My contract is up. I'm not going to sit here and say no more. I love the character. The only reason it would end is because my contract is up. And quote there. Uh, let's see. He added, quote, talk to Marvel. If we engage further, I'd be open to it. I love the character. It's almost like high school. You certainly always look to senior year. And then all of a sudden senior year happens and you're like, I don't know if I'm ready to go. It's tough thinking about not playing the guy, end quote there. Uh, I definitely, uh, again, that's only the first half of the article. You should jump in and read the other half. Um, what do you think, Tim? Questions, comments, concerns on either of these, on the uh, Venom movie looking to begin filming this fall to release next year, or Chris Evans saying that uh, it's up to Marvel. It's like he's kind of back and forth on it because... I have read previous articles a uh, year or so back where he was also kind of saying, like, you know, I'm done with the whole Marvel thing. I want to go and do work behind the scenes. But then I can I can feel his pain. You know, sometimes you're 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 just kind of done and you're ready to move on. But then as the finality approaches, you're just kind of like, wow, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to do this? Um, but yeah, what do you think, Tim? 
I think Chris Evans can play Captain America for a bit longer. I know, I guess in the comic book universe, somebody takes the shield after Captain America. I don't know if he dies or whatnot and it gets handed down to his predecessor or somebody who he's training or I, I don't know what. And I have a feeling eventually they're going to be moving in that direction. Seeing it as how, like, at the end of Logan, X-23 and all those other mutants go off and, you know, and have their own journey. And apparently we're going to get a sequel to Logan, and it's going to be about those kids in X-23. So I can see them wanting to move on and bring in a younger generation. Because this Marvel, like, the three phases that we're currently experiencing, or I guess maybe, is next year going to be Phase 4? No, we still... Uh, phase, phase three isn't supposed to end until 2019. Okay. Cause after phase three, the whole huge Marvel cinematic universe storylines where, you know, it's all building up to these big movies, these big Avengers movies coming out next year. What else are they going to do after this? I mean, they got to hold off on the Avengers and do smaller movies featuring these individual superheroes. So if I was Chris Evans, I would totally hold out until I can at least do maybe two or three more Captain America movies that are just standalone movies that don't have to tie together or that don't have to link to a bigger motion picture, you know, or to like a big event movie, I should say. Yeah. So I, I like to see him keep doing it. I, I, yeah, I, I agree. I think they're going to have to, and I think they will ultimately, start doing what Star Wars is doing, where they have their main franchise movies, right, where they're doing 7, 8, 9. And then they're, the alternating years, they're going to do the Star Wars stories, right, so that they're going to be kind of one-offs that might, you know, have potential to become their own franchises or whatever. Uh, but at the same time, can be smaller scale stories that don't necessarily have to go anywhere. So, I mean, I could definitely see it going that way as well. So what do you got for us, sir? Oh, and then real quick for Venom, I'm pretty sure Sony should be worried about having two separate timelines, especially when the new Spider-Man movie is going to be established with it being a part of the Marvel canon, the Avengers canon. So I'm not too familiar with the storyline of Venom, but I'm pretty sure there's some kind of like intersecting that's supposed to happen within some of the the story elements. I mean, I, I'm not I don't know if that's true or not, but of, of what I know about Venom, which is the Peter Parker Spider-Man storyline of Venom, I, I just really don't see how they can have two separate franchises going without intersecting at some point. And then I also kind of think Sony should worry about the movie being rated R. Logan has a huge fan base. Yet, Logan isn't doing as well as Deadpool. And Deadpool was a very unique movie. So, I really don't know where Venom stands with this whole R-rated comic book movie you know, thing. Are people going to really care? I don't really know too much about Venom. I'm not really yearning for a Venom movie. They're going to really have to sell people on this. And I really don't think... Well- I mean, I'm I'm sorry. I guess I don't understand. You say Logan's not doing as well as Deadpool. I mean, it's got almost six hundred million dollars in the box office. So, um. no, it's doing fine. But what I'm saying is that Deadpool, at this point, Deadpool had made has made more money. Is what I'm saying. Right, but compared to Deadpool, at this point, as where in the release, as to where uh where Logan is now, 
week-wise, Deadpool made more money. And so Deadpool was successful because it's going off of just Ryan Reynolds and who he is and his charm and charisma and all that stuff. Um, the uniqueness of having an R-rated superhero movie and it being, you know, part of the X-Men universe. And then the second R-rated superhero movie is Logan. And we all know Logan. Logan has a huge fan base. So, of course, people are going to go to Logan. And so I, I just don't really know how Venom is going to sit compared to something like Logan and uh, Deadpool. It, I don't know if it should be like a lower budget movie, but I don't know how it sh can be a lower budget movie since it's probably going to all be CGI given what Venom is. I, you know, I just don't know. And I think that is something that they should be kind of worried about. Well, fair enough. Alrighty, first piece of news from me. Matt, you're a big Robert Rodriguez fan, aren't you? Um, Once Upon a Time. In Mexico? Yeah. Um, His his earlier stuff, yes. Not really anything he's done in the last at least three or four years that I can think of. Maybe even five years. Other than From Dust Till Dawn, the TV show, the series, which is actually pretty good... The last couple movies he made, or at least he directed, were Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, Machete Kills, Machete, and I think before that he did Planet Terror. Oh, and this, I guess this is a kid's movie called Shorts. So he hasn't really had a hit in a while. Well, according to TheHollywoodReporter.com, Robert Rodriguez in talks to direct Escape from New York Remake. That is right. This is written by Chris Connor, and it says this. John Carpenter, who directed and co-wrote the original, is executive producing the project, which is targeting a production start later this year. Robert Rodriguez is in negotiations to direct Escape from New York, 20th Century Fox's remake of the 1980s cult classic that starred Kurt Russell. Andrew Rona and Alex Heinemann of the picture company are producing the feature, which the studio's hoping to launch as a franchise in the same mold of its Planet of the Apes series. The original 1981 movie was set in a future, then 1997, where Manhattan had been turned into an island-sized maximum security prison when the President of the United States crashes into the decaying city, an outlaw is coerced into traveling inside to rescue him. Neil Cross, the creator of the BBC crime series Luther, wrote the script. Uh, the article does go on for a little bit more. Do check it out if uh, you're interested. What do you think about this, Matt? I know it really doesn't mean much when it when when John Carpenter is producing or executive producing anything because as long as he's getting paid, he'll put his name on any piece of crap movie. So to me, that doesn't mean anything at all. So really, it just comes down to the studio wanting it to be a franchise and the fact that Robert Rodriguez is directing it. So what do you think? I'm just going to say what we said, what I said before during the pre-show. Didn't Luke Besson already remake it? That's, you know. Didn't we do, we, we did like a whole segment on it and we, we did this whole comparative thing. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I agree with you. <laughs> um, it, it's, I think it's dumb. And, and I, I don't, I, I don't see this being good in any way, shape or form. Uh, I, I don't know what it is about Robert Rodriguez post 20, you know, 10. But 
None of his work is, except for potentially 100 years. 100 years could theoretically be good, but we'll never know. Maybe your youngest daughter will know. Maybe. She would, she will, even then, she'd be 103. So, I don't, yeah, I don't know. That'd be weird. But okay, we all know John Malkovich will still be alive (laughs) at the time. So, no, okay, all right, I'm sorry. I've derailed you, and I apologize. Uh, No, in in all seriousness, he really hasn't done, I know, and we were talking about it just now, but he really hasn't done very much that I've enjoyed in the last seven years, it seems like. Um, And I just, um, I miss the inventive Robert Rodriguez. I miss the guy who was willing to take real chances. The guy who had um, nothing to lose and everything to prove. And we got some amazing work from him. And I just feel like he's not there anymore. And how is doing a remake with or without Carpenter's Blessing of Escape from New York, how is that going to reestablish him? I don't know. Um, But maybe he's made enough money in his career and he doesn't care anymore. That's fine. Uh, It's totally a valid thing. But that doesn't mean that anybody's going to like it. So... There you go. Alrighty, well, I'm just going to jump over to my next piece of news real quick. Oh, yeah, I guess I should say my point of view of <laughs> of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you. I personally enjoy the original Escape from New York, but it is dated. And I remember when we did the, I think we did a copycat throwdown with Escape from New York versus Lockout. And that's one thing you said was it's the movie is just dated And maybe that's the reason why they want to make a new one. I just hope when they make the new one, they make it at least as somewhat memorable and not a direct copy, a carbon copy of the original movie. I know we're going to have Snake Plissken, but keep some of the charm and some of the nuance, but do something a little bit different. And if he does that, because I know he's the king of making low-budget Hollywood grade movies so I mean that's probably one of the reasons why they're having him doing it because he can probably do it under budget and it still look really good and if that's the case that could be maybe a unique selling point for the movie I don't know but I guess we'll find out next year apparently that's when it's supposed to come out via gizmodo.com an article here written by Brian Meningas the most not safe for work site for streaming every Star Wars movie is Pornhub. That's right. As far as accidental comedy goes, few things beat watching a PG-rated Disney film on a site with the ads for penis enlargement guides and Tinder for MILFs. (laughs) And while I didn't specifically seek out Pornhub or 2014's animated adventure Big Hero 6 today, both came into view thanks to the Reddit community r forward slash full movies on Pornhub. The subreddit's name is a clear nod to its older and better subscribed siblings, full movies on YouTube and full movies on Vimeo, which both include no pornography as their primary rule. Pause for laughter. Pornhub may not be as popular a dumping ground for illegal movie uploads, but it's one of the best for high-profile releases. 
Rogue One, Moana, Bad Santa 2, Doctor Strange, Age of Ultron, and Step Brothers are all currently available, often under titles like, quote, definitely not the full movie of Step Brothers, end quote. YouTube's aggressive content ID copyright protection system and its partnerships with deep-pocketed studios make it exceptionally difficult to upload highly sought-after movies to the site. Cropping a movie aggressively can trick the robots, but it also makes movies basically unwatchable. So the full movies on YouTube crowd tends to stick with more obscure releases. Currently near the top of the subreddit, for example, early no budget John Carpenter film Dark Star, and Grandahar, which is better known as the René Leloup movie that isn't Fantastic Planet. Oftentimes, YouTube will flag and remove content the instant it's uploaded. Pornhub, on the other hand, ironically seems to give very few fucks. (laughs) The obvious question, why is it on here, appears in the comments for the upload of The Force Awakens. Quote, my original plan was to upload movies I've downloaded to YouTube as an unlisted video as I could just share the links between friends and family, end quote, writes Pornhub user Free Entertainment. Quote, it didn't work, so I decided to upload a movie here just to see what would happen, end quote. That user has since uploaded every single Star Wars movie. The Force Awakens alone has been viewed nearly 60,000 times on the site. The article goes on from there, and um, if you are to watch... The Force Awakens on Pornhub. Uh, oddly enough, it is actually titled Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens. But if you are wanting to watch Casino Royale on Pornhub, its title is This Ain't Casino Royale. Clearly, it is Casino Royale. <laughs> so Matt, is that going to be your new illegal movie watching site? I mean, I'm surprised with how many times you visit Pornhub.com you haven't come across this. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say come across it. Maybe. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I guess um, people have needs. And I am glad that Pornhub is reaching out to expand uh, the needs of those uh, who, would, who would visit, uh, even inadvertently, by saying, hey, you know, Pornhub is not just about porn. God damn it, it's about the love of the culture of Star Wars. And you should be able to watch every fucking Star Wars movie while you're fucking. So we're going to have them here. So, yeah, I mean, and then apparently, you know, with, with titles like This Ain't Casino Royale, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they actually now start putting the porn names of movies, right? Like Saving Ryan's Privates. And then you actually end up watching Saving Private Ryan. Um, or Big Dildo Six. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that, wouldn't that just beat all? People are literally going to porn sites. Everybody thinks they're watching porn. And really, it's just become the biggest underground ring for just watching streaming movies. <laughs> you know, actually, that might turn people off of porn because, you know, you're getting ready to watch some whatever porn and it turns out to be a kid's movie. And, you know, that that could have some good, like, psychological effect on the avid porn watcher. Oof, the avid. Maybe, I don't know. Watcher. Unless you're one who, who's like, man, finding, I'm really enjoying Finding Dory, but I, I just really need to bust one out right now. 
So it's all one convenient place. Exactly. Well, I mean, you know, maybe the smart users will split screen or use dual monitors. Anyways. <laughs> all right. Well. Take it from Matt. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Those who know me know about my dual monitors. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so here is a couple of bits of news. One, and this is going to be my last two pieces of news here because we've uh, we got a lot of time going in. Uh, from Engadget.com, by way of Devendra Hardawar. Netflix's big-budget Death Note remake lands on August 25th. Yes, We'll soon learn why Netflix spent 40 to 50 million dollars on a live action adaptation of the anime series Death Note. The streaming service revealed the first teaser for the film and announced that it will premiere on August 25th. It's a particularly big get for Netflix. Death Note was wildly popular during its initial manga and anime runs and it spawned several live action films in Japan. There's even a musical! Death Note was also one of the few anime series that have been regularly available on Netflix for several years, which gave subscribers plenty of chances to dive into it. So, despite the big budget, it makes sense for Netflix to be the home of an American adaptation. The series centers on a disaffected high school student, Light, uh, who stumbles on the Death Note, a book which has the power to kill anyone whose name is written in it. As Light goes on a killing spree, he's also hunted down by a genius detective, L. It all sounds like a bit, I'm sorry, it all sounds a bit silly when you summarize it, but the original series ended up being a thrilling game of cat and mouse. Uh, it says here that the adaptation relocates the action from Tokyo to Seattle, and it also brings in Willem Dafoe as the voice of Ryuk, the Death Note's demonic owner. Um, that is definitely about two-thirds of that article. I want you to certainly read the rest. But I have to say that I saw the trailer for this. Tim, you had posted it on Facebook. And um, I saw it, and and my my thinking on this is that while there were movies of this in uh, in Japan, they were pretty good and kind of needed more than one to really do it justice. Um, but in this particular day and age, something like Death Note really and truly needed to be a series. Um, it need and and especially with Netflix. Oh my God, with Netflix, you would completely be able to have the series go like it wouldn't even need to be like two to three seasons, right? So real simple. You could tell the overarching story. You could make it great. You could expand on the characters, but to try and squeeze all of the thrills and chills that Death Note provides as someone who loved the anime um, and try and squeeze it into one movie, it's ridiculous. And if they, and if this is just some kind of big, you know, oh, it's really not just one movie, well then that's, I don't know. That's kind of bait and switchy, and I'm not real happy that Netflix would do that. Um, I, I desperately want for it to be good, but I don't think it is going to be. Um, and then real quick here from Variety.com by way of Brent Lang. Studios flirt with offering movies early and home for $30. Uh, as of March 21st, 2017, this was an exclusive for Variety. Uh, it says here that six of the seven biggest Hollywood studios are continuing to push to offer movies in the home mere weeks after their theatrical debuts. However, the companies, particularly Fox and Warner Brothers, are showing greater flexibility about timing. Initially, Warner 
Warner Brothers CEO, Kevin Tushihara, um, had kicked off negotiation with exhibitors by offering to cut them in on a percentage of digital revenues if they agreed to let the, them debut films on demand for 50 bucks a rental some 17 days after they open. Currently, most major movies are only made available to rent some 90 days after their release. Some studios offer films for sale electronically roughly 70 days after their bow in theaters. Uh, basically here, uh, we've got other studios, particularly Fox Universal, felt that $50 was too steep. Uh, and we have Fox and Warner Brothers, for instance, are considering making films available 30 to 25, between 30 to 45 days after their opening, but at $30 a rental, a price they believe won't give customers sticker shock. Uh, Universal, which is seen as being the most aggressive negotiator in these talks, would like the home entertainment debut to remain in the 20 day range. The thing is, though, is that, um, the problem here is because of antitrust laws, they actually are not able to collectively come together with the ex- with the exhibitors. Uh, so, like the Cinemarks, the AMC's of the world, the Regal, you know, what have you, and say, "Hey, let's all work together to come to an agreement on it." They're not allowed to do that uh, because of collusion. Now, it's it sucks in this one instance, but. In the grand scheme of things, that's actually a good thing. Um, and so what's happening is, is now everybody is trying to, uh, you know, read everybody else and be like, okay, well, how's 50 days? Oh, how's 30? How's 20? You know, how's $50? How's $30? Until, and until somebody makes a, makes a, makes a deal, you know, it's really just kind of, what if and of course as we know if is the biggest word in the whole wide world um i definitely uh there there is a lot more to this article and i would highly recommend that you read it it's a great article it really is it's a great read um i personally think that in this particular instance um this is really going to be the best way for um, exhibitors to move forward because what's going to end up happening if the DVD market continues to crash uh, as it has been. And believe me, I still love my Blu-ray collection. Um, I am personally testing the waters. I did the um, Rogue One uh, with Disney Movies Anywhere, you can actually sync up your accounts now. So you can sync between iTunes and uh, Google and Amazon. And literally, it doesn't matter which platform you bought it on. If it's registered through Disney Movies Anywhere, uh, you can watch it on any platform and from any device. So this is my first foray. Uh, it comes with all the extra special features. It comes with everything else that you already, you know, want in your uh, movie experience. It's already HD and all that good stuff. Yeah. Is it the same price it's as five, the disc? No, it's five bucks less. Really? Yeah. And it comes with everything. Yeah. It's uh, so like huh. Star Wars is two hours and or Rogue One's like two hours and ten minutes or something, right? And the movie comes in, it clocks in, and they give you the entire content piece at once, and it's three and a half hours. So they're giving you the hour and a half of all the special features. And then through the DMA site, you can actually just click on it and then select which things you want to watch. And it'll just jump you directly to that part. And then, of course, if you link your accounts together, um, then if you bought it on iTunes, you can still access it through any of the players. Um, and they'll work across the platforms. So I'm dipping my toe in. 
And that means that they're, that the studio gets the money, but the Blu-ray sale is now lost. Um, you know, so I get where studios are coming from on this. They want to be, and also you can't get Rogue One on Blu-ray until the 6th of April. But as of last Friday, you were able to buy it on, uh, digital. So I get it. Um, and what's going to end up happening if the exhibitors don't play ball is they're just not going to get the releases. They will literally flood blockbuster after blockbuster that people won't pay to see and then use that as the reason that we're not making any money with you anymore. We're just going to go ahead and release digitally without you. And you hide and watch. The, the, the studios will do that if they have to. They have no problem with taking the hit because they know that people will buy the content and then they'll just cherry pick which stuff they want to go uh, to the theaters on things that they really feel need to try and make money. But they'll flood them with tent poles and blockbusters until there's not enough money out there where people will fatigue out and there's just not enough money to support it. And then they'll say, you're not, you know what, your windows are too great. We're losing money by doing it this way. We'll just do it another way. So... I can already see that happening. The exhibitors are going to have to play ball. Um, but they need to make money too. I, I, so I don't know. I think it might be worth it. Um, I just, I can already see like somebody hosting a party and be like, Hey, you know, two bucks a person. Come on in. You know, don't worry about going to the theater. <laughs> we'll just, we'll just watch the latest Star Wars movie here. Um, so I don't know. What do you think there, Tim, on either of these uh, things, on either the Variety article about studios flirting with the $30 in-home early rental or Netflix's Death Note from Engadget? Yeah, I don't know if I would do a $30 in it because I, I like watching movies by myself. And uh, that I mean, that's a pretty hefty ticket price for one for one dude. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I, we're, we're like I've said this before. We are in a very interesting time, the entertainment business and all, and with digital streaming and Netflix becoming a movie studio, Amazon, you know, a, a shopping company, an online shopping company is now a movie studio and a TV studio. So we're in a really fascinating time in entertainment. I have no idea what to expect. And in regards to Death Note. Um, it is going to be directed by, or it is directed by, Adam Wingard. And granted, he did the Blair Witch remake, but he also did the guest in VHS and VHS 2, well, segments of VHS and VHS 2. And he also directed Your Next. So he has a very good visual eye and an interesting way of storytelling. I think with Blair Witch, I don't think he was able to make the movie that he absolutely wanted to make. So since Netflix doesn't have a very hands-on approach maybe if he's a huge fan of death note maybe it'll turn out to be to be good but you are absolutely right it's kind of difficult to tell via the trailer that's all i gotta say no more news on my end all right well then that is going to bring us to the end of the news overall and now we talk about copycat throwdown it's it's the the copy copy cat cat throwdown throwdown that's right it's the copycat throwdown well that's right it's the copycat throwdown stop it 
Stop, stop it. it. No, no, seriously. Stop it. Oh, right. Like, stop repeating? Stop repeating. Right. Oh, uh, okay. I'm going to kick your ass. Throwdown And this time on Copycat Throwdown, we are comparing 1972 Solaris versus 2002's Solaris. Let's see. Do, would you like to kick off, sir? You had less news than I did. Or do you want me to kick off, sir? Your turn. You go. <laughs> okay. Do it. Fair enough. All right. So, for those who are unaware, Solaris is actually a 1961 science fiction novel uh, by a Polish gentleman named Stanislaw Lem. Now, the thing about this movie is that, or this movie, about this novel is that it is actually philosophical in nature it is in point of fact science fiction but what it's what it's really getting at is how we think and feel in terms of communication and moreover what it means to try and communicate with an alien force with an alien being so think from a 60s perspective arrival but a lot more bleak and interesting with some philosophical questions thrown in. And it was, it was very well received at the time. Uh, it was in terms of the period was pretty quickly turned into, uh, a made for TV movie back in 1968, um, a miniseries in Russia. And shortly thereafter, uh, in 1972, there was an actual feature film made, and it is a very long feature film. It's nearly three hours long, and yet it's really, really well done. And what they did in this movie, and subsequently in the 2002 film, was they kind of stepped away from the philosophical nature of the communication aspect that the book, that was really good in the book, and instead gave kind of a premise for everything and then turned it turned its uh its philosophical questions onto human nature regarding relationships. And so both films kind of go down that path. They don't look at the path of communication. They look at the path of human relationships. Um and that is where we're at on this. And so basically, um, the, the story centers around a psychologist by the name of Chris Kelvin. And, uh, he is sent from Earth in, you know, in something that he, he knows it could be a very long time. He may never get back, uh, to go to this really far off space station where they have contact, they have contacted a planet called Solaris and they have come to realize that Solaris is actually a life form the whole planet is a life form and they're trying to figure out what's going on and they try to communicate they try to see what's happening but all that's getting back to earth is like garbled stuff and so uh Chris Kelvin is sent out there to try and figure out what's going on and see if it's worth our continued efforts and upon his arrival, shenanigans ensue, as I always like to say, and literally people are kind of like coming back from the dead. Or are they dead? Were they dead when they... The, all these relationships of people who were on board start materializing for everyone else. And that's all I'm going to say, because you need to watch either one of these films. Now... 
I thought both of these movies were good. I was truly surprised with 2002, um, 2002 version, just because um, I like George Clooney, but you know, not everything he does is great. Um, but even still, I think he's a he's a solid actor. I just was really impressed with, um, I, I was impressed with the storytelling nature, and in terms of the plot lines. Uh, there's a lot more involved naturally because the other movie's longer in the 72 version. But it is really, really well acted. Like really and truly well acted and very compelling. But where the two movies actually diverge the most is in the endings. The questions that the endings of these films ask are really, really different. And they both kind of, they, they both, they pose questions from a similar viewpoint, but they ask very different questions and they ask them very pointedly. And I felt that the questions that the, that the 2002 version of the film asked, I felt were better than the questions that the 1972 film asks. And so it is on that basis and only that basis that I pick as my copycat winner, uh, Solaris from 2002. I think they're both great movies, and I would encourage anyone to watch both. But I personally liked the questions that the end of the movie, uh, that the end of 2002 Solaris asked overall. What do you got there, Tim? Big spoiler alert for my take on this copycat throwdown. If you're interested, based on what Matt was talking about, stop or fast forward to the movie reviews and watch the movie and come back and listen to the rest of this. Uh, because I'm going to go uh, into a little bit more detail of the story itself. Because where exactly they focused on the story, I felt were different from one another. So, um, like what Matt was saying, Chris is sent to, in both versions, the psychologist's name is Chris, is sent to the space station. And apparently the whole deal with the space station in both of these movies is that Solaris, in some way, is communicating to this crew via apparitions and what the planet does is that it takes the innermost dreams and desires from the crew when they're sleeping and basically tailor makes apparitions suited for each person and so in both movies chris the psychologist his apparition is his dead wife and uh, I'm letting you know this because I reference, uh, I'm going to be referencing an apparition. And just so where you know, I'm, you know, what I'm talking about, uh, the apparition I'm referring to is his wife, the wife apparition. So the 2002 movie, I'm going to start off with this one. It is said that it is more faithful to the book compared to the 1972 version. The themes in the nuanced focus is very different in the 2002 version than the 1972 version. The themes focus more on second chances and the possibility that the Solaris planet could be a higher being. The themes in the 72 version tend to lean towards humanity and human consciousness. The focus is more so on Chris in this version, the psychologist. He's not as lost and cerebral, but acts more on emotional impulse and love. His wife's apparition, in this movie her name is Rhea, R-H-E-Y-A, his wife's apparition, the viewer isn't as comfortable 
with her and fully aware of her intentions, if any, until she takes drastic action to help Chris later on in the movie. The 72 version, Gahari, his wife's name in that one, like the movie itself, is a beautifully crafted, slow-burn character. She's more complex, and your connection with her grows throughout the film, which makes the ending somewhat polarizing. The 2002 version has the same effect, but not as deep. The Soderbergh version is less drawn out and more straightforward. With the use of expert editing and well-placed flashbacks, it's easier for the audience to tell that Chris's dreams are manifesting into an apparition earlier in the film, cutting down on its runtime. What we do get in this retelling is a better dynamic between the Dr. Gordon character, uh, in this one it's uh, Viola Davis, Rhea, and Chris. Dr. Gordon is very vocal and adamant about her feelings towards the apparitions, so there's a clear feeling of unease and instability amongst the crew, which is heightened in the 2002 version. And the reveal of exactly what happened between Chris and Rhea in the past on Earth takes the dramatic storytelling into an all-too-real-world setting. And that's what I really, really loved about the 2002 version. It focused more on the characters and created tension. And that's what's so different about this one, I think. And what I really liked about Steve Soderbergh's take is that he didn't want to do a remake of the 1972 movie, and said he wanted to do his own retelling of the book. I think he succeeds completely. But my favorite of the two versions is the 1972 version. Yes, the 1972 version directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, the famous Russian director. He's actually made quite a few wonderful movies. What separates this version, the clear difference, is the length as well as the filmmaking techniques. They utilize lengthy shots to establish presence, tone, and atmosphere. For example, there's a lot of like this monochrome skew and in the use of various shots of one character at the beginning, Henry Burton's car as he's riding through this futuristic city, you know? So he uses all these various shots, these long drawn out shots and some like discoloration to really invoke a tone and a setting and a place and all that stuff. And another difference is the story. I felt like in the 1972 version, there is more background as to why these apparitions are appearing. And in this movie, they go into detail explaining that the apparitions are appearing as a result of the crew dropping radiation into Solaris's ocean. And the planet responded with these apparitions tailored for each human crew member based on what they desire most while dreaming. And there's also a very interesting dynamic between Chris and the apparition of his wife. Now, for whatever reason, she can't be left alone in a room and is for some reason, in one scene, compelled to go after Chris, bursting through the metallic-looking door of his living quarters, just severely cutting her arm up. Minutes later, the wound repairs itself. She then admits to Chris that she feels as if she's the one going insane, not Chris, like she's suffering some form of epilepsy. There is more of a character to the apparition of Chris's wife, which makes the situation more complex. 
Like when she overhears Dr. Snot's plans to spare the crew from future apparitions by way of transmitting waking thought to the ocean planet via radiation instead of dream thoughts. So really he's saying, let's just not go to sleep and just stay up. And at night, when the planet is taking her dreams away, why, if we're awake, then we'll just take her waking dreams away. So she hears this stuff. And she also becomes more human and can eventually survive when Chris is not in the room with her. She's capable of love, understanding the overall situation, and can make a case as to why she should stay. Though the 2002 version is more satisfying when it comes to the apparition discovering what happened to the previous apparition, because... That becomes the basis of the apparition's raw, humanistic emotion and creates down-to-earth drama in a lover's conflict between her and Chris. The 72 version of Solaris is amongst the best in the slow-burn genre of films. Simple, yet grounded in reality. It's a masterwork of characterizations in storytelling. It asks the question, what is reality and human existence. Once you, the audience member, fall into the groove and ride the two-hour and 47-minute wave, it's absolutely satisfying. There's more character detail, therefore you get caught up in the nuanced emotion and find yourself contemplating the very same questions as if you've been stuck in deep space with an apparition of a loved one who you've lost some years before. Both versions have fantastic qualities, and are unique in their own way. Though I connected more on an emotional level with the characteristics in Soderbergh's version, the overall nuance and humanistic approach of Tarkovsky's version had me in absolute awe from start to finish. And that says a lot, I think, with a two-hour and nearly 50-minute movie, you know, if it holds you in awe from beginning to end. And honestly, that is, that's really how I felt. I'm not sugarcoating anything. I'm just honestly telling you how I feel. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful movie. And yeah, I must say, I think this was an absolutely successful copycat throwdown. No, I'm just kidding. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, a, a, apparently we got so enamored of discussing the potential of a new bonus segment for next week that we neglected to pick a bonus segment for next week. <laughs> so what do we what do you want to do next week? How about this since we covered a a really good slow burn movie for a copycat throwdown. What if we do a three squared of three very good slow burn movies? Another good one would be like 2001 a Space Odyssey. Mm. Okay. All right. I dig it. I dig it. All right. So there you go. The running time doesn't matter at all. It just has to fit within the slow burn, I guess, subgenre. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. I dig it. So that's what we're going to do, guys. Next week's uh, bonus segment will be a three squared. We're going to cover our favorite slow burn flicks. And without further ado, I guess it is now time for the movies. Is it not, sir? That it is. All right, then, folks. Here we go. It's time for... The Movies! And this week's movies are... Life, 
the 2017 version, not version, just the life, the 2017 film. <laughs> and Don't Knock Twice. Uh, where would you like to start, sir? How about Don't Knock Twice? All right, Don't Knock Twice. 2016 British supernatural horror film directed by Caradog W. James. Uh, let's see here. It stars Katie Sackoff and Lucy Boynton as Jess and her daughter Chloe, respectively. And Jess is an American sculptor, uh, meets up with her strange daughter Chloe, and uh, clearly they're estranged. Uh, she wants Chloe to come live with her. Chloe says no. Chloe... Um, ends up at a, uh, um, ends up with her boyfriend's, uh, at a boyfriend's neighborhood or whatever. And there they stumble upon the house of the witch. Um, anyway, so, you know, they knock twice and hence don't knock twice. And now there's a supposedly supernatural witch thing chasing Chloe down and shenanigans ensue. Um, all right. So I thought that this was definitely I I am enjoying this um I guess I don't want to say renaissance necessarily but I am I am enjoying the this newly found focus of trying to take um age old concepts and really attempt to present them in new ways um and and it's really something that we're starting to see more and more i like that we're also starting to see it as it blends more into um sci-fi as it blends more into drama as it blends more into comedy and things for example like get out um so we're starting to see these things kind of go in different directions and it's really nice now it doesn't mean that it's always successful but i at least applaud the effort um and, and even even to the absurd like last year with Beavers, right i mean a completely ridiculous movie but another way to take things that we've seen for years turn them on their head and really you know give us something that you haven't seen before um with don't not twice okay i i like the ideas i like the creature effects behind the ideas but i really felt that um this one tried so hard to be twisty turny that it succeeded by accident and you're left kind of more confused by um i don't want to say plot holes but but just really lacking story elements because of wonky writing um and that's really kind of all I have to say. I enjoyed the movie. I really did. I enjoyed the movie, um, mainly because mainly because of the strengths of the creepiness behind where it's coming from. Reference. Let me let me make references to Baba Yaga uh, and whatever, which is like literally a Slavic medieval witch that would come after you and kill you with a pestle. Um, which, for those who don't know what a pestle is, that's the uh, blunt instrument that you use to crush stuff in a mortar and pestle, right? See, yeah, you know, when you're crushing your herbs and whatnot. Um, so I, I like those references. I like the creature effects in the movie. Um, and, and the acting was decent. It wasn't nothing to write home about, but it was decent. On the strength of those, I gotta give it a 3.75. Um, the only thing, again, that really hurts it is really wonky writing that makes it, that honestly makes it somewhat confusing by the end of the movie. Um, 
And and I get that they're trying to be twisty and turny, but instead of being clever, they just end up being confusing. And I I don't give points for succeeding by accident. Um, three point seven five out of five. What do you got there, Tim? I didn't really care for this movie all too much. I like the idea. I'm a huge Katie Sackhoff fan, uh, so it's always nice seeing her. And I'm willing to let certain things slide by, I guess, if she's in the movie. Or if that's the case with not-that-great movies with actors that I enjoy. But I really like the witch character in this movie. I didn't think all the jump scares were very necessary. I thought the handful of times when there were when, when there were like legitimate horror elements, like there's the scene... I don't, I, this might be midway through. It might be a little bit after midway through where a young girl is alone in, in a big house kind of walking around and, you know, you hear the witch say something like right behind her back or you'll see the witch like appear in a door frame or something like that. And it's all very dark and a lot of shadows and spooky. I like that kind of stuff. I know it's an incredibly low budget horror movie and I just think instead of some of the jump scares, he could have played a little bit more with that. Because when I say jump scares, they are legitimate jump scares. I mean, there's no denying it whatsoever. I do like the whole ending set piece itself, the whole idea of it and how it was executed kind of creeped me out. But overall, I just kind of think the movie was a a missed opportunity. I'm not too sure where it actually went wrong. I don't know if it was the writer or the director or what, but I'm just, it it was a little too off for me. So I'm going to land on two. I just didn't like it. I, I appreciate it. It wasn't completely a bust. And there are definitely things that I liked about it. It just overall isn't a good movie. In my mind, no, no, that, that's fine. I mean, that, that that's fair. That's fair. You know, I get. I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I recognize that it was low budget. So, yeah, I don't know. That's cool. It's cool. It's cool. So, I guess that leaves <laughs> us with life. Does it not, sir? That is right. All right. So, directed by Daniel Espinosa, this is a 2017 American science fiction horror film, um, and it stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Rebecca Ferguson, and Ryan Reynolds, along with uh, Hiroyuki Sanada. Arian uh, Bakare and Olga Dihovichnaya. And I apologize for butchering that last name. Um, okay. Now, this is a movie about the, uh, it's, okay, so you've got the, uh, ISS in space. They, that you got the, uh, of course, the, again, the global cast, right? We're bringing everybody together. Um, and much like Event Horizon or Red Dawn or Red Red Planet, Red Planet, not Red Dawn, obviously. I'm sorry, but Red Planet, I think, the, from the from the '90s, you know. And oh, the Val Kilmer movie. Yeah, the Val Kilmer. When was he's that? on Mars and the robots yeah. chasing him. And then, of course, Event Horizon is. I mean, not the same thing, but similar in vain to space you know, horror or whatever. And so we have the international crew in the ISS and uh, they they are looking at getting these particular samples from Mars and they're going to intercept them and look at them and everything. And, oh my gosh, you know, can, can we actually bring extraterrestrial life, you know, to us? And, uh, you know, guess what? <laughs> There's a reason why we don't have extraterrestrial life near us. Um, okay, so it's basically like your typical space monster movie, 
uh, horror style film. And again, this is nothing that the trailer doesn't give away. Um, you get the idea. These people come in, they're there, this thing comes after them. Will they survive? What's going to happen? How does it work? Shenanigans ensue. Um, here's the thing. I thought the acting was really well, really well done. I liked the idea of trying to work the, um, the angle of evolution as we understand it, but you know, to the nth degree and using that as kind of the impetus for the horror in the movie instead of just kind of having a, a little bit like Alien did. And, um, and yet trying to make it, um, as realistic as possible in terms of what would actually happen aboard the ISS if something like this happened. So I, I like the genre bending in that regard. Unfortunately, and this is where this movie falls apart for me. I, fall, I say falls apart. Uh, 4.25 out of 5. It's a, it's a very, very decent movie. Um, I just, it literally didn't do anything that we, I hadn't seen before. But, I mean, really, really good uh, special effects. Really, really good acting. I just feel it's, I just feel it's really predictable. So, uh, and which is odd for me to say 4.25. Um, but that tells you how well executed the movie is. Despite it being really, really predictable, it's still really, really fun. 4.25 out of 5. Bring us home, Tim. I think my biggest thing with this movie is that I wanted it to be smarter. You have a really good cast and a nice little switcheroo with the first death. But I, I really wanted the movie to be smarter. I wanted the scientists and the astronauts to be smarter. I also wanted the alien to be smarter. The first 20-ish minutes of the movie felt a lot like an alien retreat. Again, you have the dumb scientists doing things normal people would give grave consideration not doing, like opening up things just randomly without there being any, like, maybe I should peek in there first to make sure, maybe, like, throw a light down in there. There's a scene where one of the scientists is outside the ship, and I forget exactly what they're doing, but at this time, the alien is in the piping. She's outside, and I guess it's like an exhaust vent or something, but it leads into the pipe. And instead of slowly unscrewing the pipe and maybe putting a light down there or looking in there or just kind of build tension, she just kind of pulls it off, and of course the alien pops out. So it's a lot of things like that. They didn't use a second unit crew at all. So they didn't do a lot of pickup shots. And I think if they did do that, we would have gotten a little bit of a fuller feeling movie. And to me, it just felt like the movie was missing kind of the setup to some of these moments. And I think it really needed that setup for those moments because a lot of the same stuff just kind of happens. As the monster goes after somebody and everybody runs away. The alien gets a little bit smarter, a little bit bigger. The alien goes after somebody, and everybody gets, and the other people get away. And the alien gets a little smarter and a little bit bigger. And it just keeps going and going and going until, you know, the end, pretty much. Uh, and there's also a type of disconnect between the CGI creature and the human actors. And I think it really takes a toll on the peril. I'm a firm believer that the actors really need to see what they're supposed to be afraid of. And in some way, maybe this movie would have been a little bit better if it came out in the 90s or the 80s or something like that where they could have had like a puppet but it, there was just that disconnect and again i just can't tell if it's because 
the movie was lacking the pickup shots or the second unit or what. There was just a nuanced aspect that was not there. I also thought outside the action, the dialogue just felt a little too procedural and scripted. You know, the science talk and the obvious explaining of how one feels and the location. And at first, I had a big knock against Ryan Reynolds, who plays an obvious Ryan Reynolds-type cocky, outspoken character. I eventually got over that because I kind of came to the conclusion that it's a tactic of some sort. Um, and that's all I'll say about it because I definitely don't want to ruin it. It's kind of a nice little treat that this movie gives the audience. I give this one a three. I think if you are a casual moviegoer and don't watch you know 500 movies a year like I do, I think you'll have a good time at the movie theater, especially if you're a sci-fi alien fan you have fine performances in a decent plot and the alien itself is kind of cool despite it being completely cgi so three out of five for me excellent excellent um all right well then let's see here so next week's movies are going to be ghost in the shell yes that's coming out for the theater so we'll be doing that as well as the black coat's daughter on vod so, until next week, until next week, I guess before we get that far, we need to make sure we're done with everything, and it is time for the spiel, right? Right? Righto. Right. Spiel on. You want to do this again? We could just do the whole thing again. Yeah, let's do the whole thing again. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, so next week's movies are going to be Ghost in the Shell, which is coming out for the theaters, and then, of course, The Black Coat's Daughter on VOD. And I believe that it is now time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can, of course, follow me. This is Matt on Twitter by following at Nitwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Rebecca Ferguson, I get to say this. I need challenging roles. I look forward to reading a script where I call my agent and go, what the fuck are you thinking? Of course I can't do this. I'd like to be uncomfortable and challenge that. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week.
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.